0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 1 of this presentation... There will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Notorious Skyjacker D.B. Cooper. Now let's get started with our story about D.B. Cooper. On November 24, 1971, a man walked up to the Northwest Orient ticket counter at the Portland-Oregon International Airport. After waiting online line for a few moments, he paid $20 in cash for a ticket for flight 305 to Seattle, a scheduled 30-minute trip, leaving at 2.50 p.m. He gave his name as Dan Cooper for the purposes of ticketing, but he was not required to show identification. Dressed in a dark suit, black tie, and white shirt with a black raincoat, He looked identical to any number of business travelers anxious to make it home for the following day's Thanksgiving celebration. He was assigned seat 18C, an aisle seat in the last row, and boarded the plane with 36 other passengers, not including the crew. Shortly after takeoff, Dan Cooper ordered a bourbon and 7-Up, lit a cigarette, and again exhibited no behaviors that would distinguish him from any of the other passengers on board. Soon afterwards, Cooper gave a handwritten note to the closest flight attendant, a woman named Florence Schaffner. Schaffner frequently received such notes from male passengers that typically were requests for a date or her phone number, and she routinely deposited them unread into her pocketbook. Cooper responded by saying calmly to her, Miss, you better look at that note. Although the exact wording of the message is unknown because Cooper would eventually demand its return, it indicated that he had a bomb and wanted Schaffner to sit next to him. When she sat down, he quickly opened a briefcase that contained numerous malevolent-looking red cylinders connected by wiring to a large battery. As the plane took off on time and began climbing in the air, another flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, walked to the back of the cabin to investigate why Flo Schaffner was suddenly sitting down in a passenger seat. Noticing the note, which was now on the floor, she picked it up and read it, She then picked up the plane's intercom, located near the rear lavatory, and informed the cockpit that the plane was being hijacked by a passenger with a bomb. The pilot, William Scott, co-pilot William Ratichek, and flight engineer Harold Anderson were not sure how to respond and decided to wait until the hijacker began to make demands. As the plane continued its ascent, Cooper asked Flo Schaffner to write down what he wanted. While she took out a pen, he inexplicably donned a pair of sunglasses. He told her that when the plane landed in Seattle, he wanted $200,000 in cash placed in a knapsack. He also wanted four parachutes, two front and two back, and a fuel truck to refuel the plane. He added that all of his demands were to be met by 5 p.m. He warned her that he was serious and would not hesitate to blow up the plane. Florence Schaffner insisted that she had to take the note to the cockpit, so Cooper demanded that Tina Mucklow sit down next to him. After examining the note, pilot William Scott and co-pilot Ratacek presumed that they were dealing with a determined criminal and decided to comply with his demands. Scott contacted Northwest's flight operations in Minnesota and advised the airline's headquarters of the situation. A decision on whether the airline would meet the hijackers' ransom demands was deferred to the president of the company, Donald Nyrop. He quickly decided to comply, presuming that insurance would cover any losses anyway. The FBI was informed and immediately agents in Seattle and Portland scrambled to both airports. In the back of the hijacked plane, Cooper continued to chain-smoke cigarettes and chit-chat with Tina Mucklow. The weather, which was sunny and calm, was about to turn as a storm approached the northwest. While fbi agents questioned any potential witnesses on the ground in Portland, in Seattle the two hundred thousand dollar ransom was assembled and transported to the airport by a Seattle homicide detective. To make the cash more cumbersome, the money was sorted into one hundred banded sets of twenty dollar bills, each set containing two thousand dollars. The bills were from the Seattle First National Bank and were pre-selected for use in the event of a robbery. All of the cash's serial numbers recorded on microfiche. By the time the money got to the airport, the parachutes had also arrived. On Flight 305, the flight crew was not sure whether they should alert the passengers that the plane had been hijacked. When they asked Cooper what his preference was, he told them not to inform the passengers. Instead, the pilots, trying to buy time until they were informed that all of Cooper's demands had been met, announced that the plane would have to circle and burn off extra fuel. Even so, the passengers started to get restless and began peppering both flight attendants with questions and became frustrated when the two women provided little information. Cooper reiterated his demands to Mucklow and told her that when they landed at SeaTac, he wanted her to retrieve the money and bring it back onto the plane. The cold front finally got to the Seattle area, and rain became visible on the windows of the aircraft. The plane had been in the air for more than three hours, and it was past 5 p.m., the hijacker's deadline. He was told that the parachutes were not ready. He told the pilots to land the plane anyway. Because of the hijacking, the airport was closed. Other planes rerouted or told to circle for the foreseeable future. 305 landed without incident, and the passengers blithely scrambled to retrieve their luggage, impatient to leave the plane. Cooper ordered Tina Mucklow to retrieve the money, and she got off of the aircraft before the passengers and headed toward an unmarked police car with an open trunk, presuming that the money was there. The tarmac was illuminated with a giant Klieg light, and a fuel truck was also visible, A police detective handed her a canvas bag with the cash, and she quickly returned to the plane, the passengers still not sure why the door hadn't fully opened, preventing their exit. Mucklow handed the canvas bag to Cooper, initially upset that it was in a knapsack, but ultimately satisfied when he reached in to find a huge amount of money. He agreed with Mucklow that all of the passengers could leave, but demanded that the crew remain. After the passengers left the plane, Cooper directed Tina Mucklow to retrieve the parachutes, Refueling the jet was taking longer than expected, and the hijacker got increasingly upset, although he did finally agree to release Florence Schaffner and the first-class section flight attendant Alice Hancock. But he insisted that Tina Muckler remain with him and that no one else could come past the first-class cabin curtain or he would detonate the bomb. He then gave her further instructions. The plane was to be flown to Mexico City, flaps down to reduce speed. The plane could refuel in Mexico but could not land anywhere in the United States. It also was not to be flown at an altitude higher than 10,000 feet. The hijacker also made a final curious and potentially dangerous demand. The Boeing 727 had an aft door that could be lowered to allow passengers to enter and exit. Cooper demanded that the plane take off and fly with the door open. When it was explained by the pilots that this would be extremely dangerous, he demanded that Tina Mucklow show him how to open and lower the back door. Finally, an edgy Cooper personally got on the intercom and demanded that the plane leave immediately. When the pilots replied that they were working on a flight plan, he insisted they leave, noting that they could finish the flight plan after taking off. Cooper had the flight attendant demonstrate how to lower the aft door, a simple process involving pushing down a lever told her to have the pilot shut off the cabin lights, and then dismissed her. As she left, he told her not to come back through the first-class curtain again, and he began cutting up one of the parachute cords and tying the canvas money bag around his waist. The plane took off and began to move quite slowly. Only minutes after the ascent, Cooper got on the intercom again and explained that he couldn't get the aft stairs down. It was clear to the crew that he would probably attempt some kind of jump out of the plane. Suddenly, a light illuminated in the cockpit, indicating that the aft stairs were open. The co-pilot got on the intercom to try and determine what had transpired and asked Cooper if he needed any help. Cooper said no. The external temperature gate is read minus seven Fahrenheit. External air allowed in through the plane's now lowered back door would have lowered the interior's temperature dramatically and send air currents whipping through the cabin. Noise from the jet engines would also add to the chaos and discomfort. The co-pilot got on the intercom again and asked if everything was okay. Cooper's response was a tierce, everything is okay. The flight engineer could tell from the instrument panel when the rear of the plane oscillated mildly, indicating that Cooper might be walking onto the aft stairs and could even be poised to jump. The plane had been in the air for approximately 30 minutes and was approaching Portland, Oregon, but was still over a darkened wilderness area north of the city. The co-pilot again attempted to raise Cooper on the intercom, but for the first time, he got no response. These attempts continued until Tina Mucklow informed Cooper that they had to land in Reno to refuel. Again, there was no response, even to a request to raise the stairs. Mindful of Cooper's demand not to enter the rear of the cabin, the pilot decided to land with the aft door open. By now, a pair of F-106 jets and a larger rescue plane trailed Flight 305. Despite a great deal of noise, the plane landed safely, and the pilot unlocked the cockpit door, at first gingerly moving towards the rear of the plane, yelling to Cooper, ostensibly to ask if he wanted them to refuel, but also determine if he was even on the plane. There was no response. The rest of the crew emerged from the cockpit and followed slowly behind the captain. He finally got to the curtain separating first class from coach and yelled to see if Cooper would respond. Hearing nothing, he slowly opened the curtain, revealing an utterly disheveled back of the plane, paper and debris blown everywhere by the wind, and food from uneaten meals splattered on the walls. But Cooper was nowhere to be found. He had vanished literally into thin air. Before Flight 305 even landed, the first misstep in the hunt for the hijacker unfolded. News reporters listening to police scanners heard of the hijacking, and one of these journalists, Clyde Jabin of United Press International, got a hold of a Portland FBI contact to determine if there were any suspects. There was, he was told, a D. Cooper. Jabin thought he heard two initials and repeated D as in dog, B as in boy, The agent, also confused, confirmed the name D.B. Cooper by merely saying yes. Jabin wrote up the story with the erroneous name and it quickly hit the wires and was repeated across the country and around the world, forever mislabeling the mysterious hijacker as D.B. Cooper. In the immediate aftermath of the hijacking, the FBI, the chief law enforcement agency charged with investigating the case, completely searched the airplane and meticulously interviewed witnesses, the flight crew, and especially the two stewardesses who interacted with Cooper. They uncovered numerous fingerprints ultimately determined to be useless. Two of the four parachutes the hijacker left behind, a clip-on tie that would turn out to be from Penny's department store, a pearl festoon tie clasp, and eight cigarette butts of the brand Raleigh a cheaper alternative to more high-profile tobacco brands. On Thanksgiving morning, a Portland FBI investigator involved in the case, Ralph Himmelsbach, took it upon himself to use his own single-engine plane to fly over the area where it was believed that Cooper might have bailed out. He spent much of Thanksgiving Day flying back and forth over Vector 23, the route that Flight 305 took through the area, trying to spot some trace of the hijacker, a parachute, clothing, a campfire, even a body. Himmelsbach came up with nothing, and because of the poor weather and visibility, a full-scale search on foot would not begin until Friday, November 26th. D.B. Cooper's hijacking was the lead national network news story, beginning a public fascination with the case that only increased over time. On Friday, approximately 36 hours after the hijacking, local law enforcement from four southwestern Washington counties convened on the town of Woodland to begin a more thorough search for D.B. Cooper, or anything relative to the hijacking. FBI agents flooded into all of the remote towns and hamlets in the vicinity of the rugged 150-square-mile area where it was believed Cooper might have landed. Searches by helicopter, small aircraft, and even on foot were conducted, but they were hindered by the rugged, wooded territory that needed to be meticulously examined. If the hijacker survived the jump and planned an intelligent escape, no better locale could have been chosen for such an undertaking. No evidence or trace of Cooper was immediately found, and nothing suspicious was uncovered by the subsequent investigations conducted by the FBI. The only substantive clue to emerge from this stage of the investigation were the composite sketches of the hijacker, which would become universal popular culture icons. One shows an average-looking nondescript male with the benign expression of an accountant or insurance adjuster. The other is a little more quirky. The hijacker, now clad in stylish sunglasses, befitting a hitman or a Bond villain. Weeks passed without an arrest or even a suspect's name. Cooper's exploit faded from the headline, and the FBI became resigned to the lengthy investigation that would be necessary to identify and arrest D.B. Cooper. Another ramification of the hijacking were the numerous other similar incidents that occurred in the coming weeks and months. Lone male hijackers brandishing either a firearm or alleged explosive devices boarded American passenger planes, took hostages, and demanded large amounts of cash and parachutes. Most were killed or apprehended on the ground. One Richard LaPointe actually successfully bailed out over northeastern Colorado with $50,000, only to surrender after about an hour on the loose, his slacks, cowboy boots, and a shirt providing little insulation from the January cold. LaPointe's stunt got very little attention, and it was not long before the FBI began openly speculating that the reason that Cooper could not be found was because he was probably killed after leaping out of Flight 305. Investigators reasoned that attempting to jump from the plane, which was traveling at 200 miles an hour, into freezing cold wind and rain would have made getting the chute open difficult, if not impossible. Cooper also was traveling in civilian clothes, street shoes, and without a helmet, so the FBI maintained he most likely would have been at least severely injured, if not killed outright, upon landing in a densely wooded forest. Cooper was also wearing loafers, and the FBI speculated that the force of the wind when he jumped out of the plane would have immediately torn these shoes off, making landing much more difficult and escape relatively impossible. As the months dragged on without any resolution, conventional law enforcement wisdom crystallized around the concept that what everyone was really searching for was a body, that no one, not even an experienced skydiver, could have survived such conditions, and finding Cooper's remains was only a matter of time. That perspective was contradicted less than six months later when on April 7, 1972, a man flying under the alias James Johnson boarded Flight 855 in Denver, Colorado. The plane's flight began on the East Coast and was supposed to fly from Denver to Los Angeles. It was a Boeing 727, the identical craft hijacked by D.B. Cooper. James Johnson was actually a Mormon National Guard member, ex-Green Beret BYU student named Richard Floyd McCoy Jr. He sat in the last row on the aisle in the exact location used by Cooper— Heavily made up and wearing a wig, McCoy hijacked the plane to San Francisco, claiming to have explosives, a grenade and a pistol, which he brandished at the flight attendants and some passengers who became aware of the situation when the plane rerouted to San Francisco. McCoy demanded $500,000 in different denominations and four parachutes. He got the money in the chutes and got off the ground before agents could storm the plane. A duffel bag filled with the ransom money was attached to his parachute harness. This time, the FBI and other law enforcement agencies were better prepared for such an eventuality. Jets and planes typically used for rescue operations tailed Flight 855, hoping to spot the hijacker's exact location when he parachuted. The parachutes given to McCoy were brightly colored, highly visible, and fitted with electronic surveillance equipment that could be tracked by the planes pursuing the hijacked aircraft. But McCoy was also resourceful, giving pilots instructions for his escape route in 10 separate type messages that were periodically taken to the cockpit by a flight attendant. He also anticipated that the parachutes might be bugged, so he threw some of them out of the airplane to confuse his pursuers. McCoy was supposed to rendezvous with his wife after parachuting to the ground near a small airport in the vicinity of his Provo, Utah home. Because D.B. Cooper was never arrested, his account of what it was like to jump out of a 727 never materialized. But after his apprehension, Richard McCoy specifically described the experience. McCoy had extensive military and National Guard airborne parachute training. Even so, jumping out of a jet passenger plane proved to be a challenge with near-fatal consequences. It was approximately 11 p.m. when McCoy gradually began to lower himself onto the aft stairway on the back of the aircraft. Scanning the darkness for lights from any nearby search planes, the hijacker was confronted with a cold wind that affected his vision and forced him to grip the stairway with both arms. His last typed instruction ordered the pilot to circle the Provo, Utah area where he intended to rendezvous with his wife and standing on the stairwell, he could feel the plane turning in a new direction, the result of his last typed instruction. McCoy had literally flown over the same area only weeks earlier and knew the landmarks that he could now see, including Utah Lake and the Interstate I-15. He jumped feet first off of the plane, free falling at about 120 miles an hour, Despite attempting to maneuver himself to slow down his descent, McCoy was hampered by the duffel bag filled with 80 pounds of currency, pulling him onto his back. The hijacker was quickly gripped by both fear and nausea and eventually blacked out. He regained consciousness in approximately 30 seconds, but by then he could see searchlights from two military planes who were on his tail. Most likely as a result of an electronic device attached to his parachute, the planes were already dropping flares to illuminate the vicinity. The duffel bag was now spinning in the wind, rotating McCoy with it and inducing another wave of nausea. He had difficulty pulling the ripcord, but eventually got his back chute to open, his velocity and twisted parachute lines forcing him on top of the open parachute. This slowed him down, and eventually he began to float normally. McCoy could make out Utah Lake, and from 2,000 feet he saw roadblocks and automobiles on i 15 although the spinning that he experienced in his descent was now distorting his eyesight. He was aware enough to alter his descent direction away from the interstate and in the direction of open farmland. His landing was uneventful. He was even able to shift most of the impact from a right ankle he had sprained while skiing. McCoy remained motionless on the ground for a few minutes, the canopy swirling in the breeze around him as he exulted in even surviving his audacious stunt. The pilots on 855 sensed when McCoy bailed out of the plane and a crew member was sent to the rear to verify if the hijacker was gone. When he was nowhere to be found, the pilot radioed that McCoy had jumped in the vicinity of Provo, Utah. Immediately, a team of FBI agents were helicoptered to the Provo area, Also on the ground, McCoy's wife Karen waited at the small Spanish Forks, Utah Airport where McCoy had intended to meet after he landed. But McCoy was nowhere near that location, and when the 10.30 p.m. deadline for his arrival came and went, she decided that she should leave and headed home. Luckily for McCoy, the FBI helicopter and local law enforcement were focusing their search efforts on Utah Lake across the interstate and about a mile from his location. He successfully got all of his gear out of the field and made his way over a fence to a ditch by the side of a nearby two-lane highway. McCoy was able to hide his parachute and the duffel bag in a small metal tunnel that crossed underneath the road. He was then able to walk a mile and a half, evading roadblocks by crawling on the ground and making it to a drive-in fast food restaurant. It was midnight. The business was in the process of closing, but McCoy bought a soft drink and for $5 convinced a teenage patron to drive him home. He actually made it to his residence before his wife. McCoy subsequently convinced her to return to the culvert, where he retrieved the duffel bag, the law enforcement efforts and roadblocks shut down by the early morning hours. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about D.B. Cooper. Much of the information for this podcast came from Skyjack, The Hunt for D.B. Cooper by Jeffrey Gray and D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy by Bernie Rhodes and Russell Calame. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical, and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, Please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.